qualities that make people good leaders, they're the same everywhere, they apply everywhere, and they work all the time. Welcome to the Inspire Podcast, where we examine what it takes to intentionally inspire. I'm your host, Bart Egnall, President and CEO of The Humphrey Group. And if you've ever asked yourself, how can you develop an authentic leadership presence? Or how can you tell stories that have people hanging off every word? Well, then this podcast is for you. And it's not just for executives. This is a podcast for anyone who wants to influence and inspire others in their work, but also in their life. If you've ever watched a movie about the military or war, leadership often seems to reflect one stereotype, the tough, often belligerent officer yelling at their troops. And if you had to describe this style, command and control would be an apt term. But is this reality? I always wondered, you know, how do military leaders actually communicate to inspire high performance? And so I was really excited uh, that I could have Dave Burke come on the Inspire podcast and give me the opportunity to ask him these and other questions. Dave's an incredibly accomplished officer. He's a retired Marine Corps officer and combat veteran. He flew F-A-18 pilots off the USS John Stennis in support of combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan. And he spent three years as an instructor pilot at Top Gun. Following that, he deployed to Ramadi, Iraq as an Anglico forward air controller. After leaving the military, he took the lessons he learned and teaches leadership through a company called Echelon Front. In my conversation, we talk about why real leaders don't give orders, how you can lead up the chain of command, and why leadership communication in the civilian world is actually very similar to how it is in the armed forces. Enjoy my conversation today with Dave and all he has to share with us about how you can inspire. Dave, I'd like to uh, welcome you to the Inspire podcast. Thanks for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I first got to know you indirectly through the fabulous book I read, Extreme Ownership, by Jocko Willink and Leif Fabin. And then I was fortunate to hear you on a it was a long, like three-hour podcast. It was incredible, yeah, it was incredible stamina with with Jocko. But you've had a you've had an impressive career, and maybe rather than me try and capture all that you've done, I'll let you introduce yourself and your background. Well, thanks. So yeah, in reverse order, I, I joined the Marine Corps uh, back in '94 as a as a lieutenant. I had a long career flying. I got to fly a couple of deployments off uh, aircraft carriers. Spent three years up at Top Gun as an instructor. I did a Ford air control tour, so I left the cockpit for a year and called in airstrikes from the ground, and that's when I spent that time deployed in Ramadi with Leif and Jocko and the rest of their SEAL team, built my relationship with them, and went back to the cockpit for several years and uh, got to do an exchange with the Air Force, flying the F-22 Raptor, and I'd flown the F-16 with the Navy at Top Gun, and I got to fly as a first pilot operational and fly the F-35 Lightning. Uh, the Marines B variant commanded the first operational squadron, and Got to go to Johns Hopkins to get a, a master's on an academic fellowship, and then uh, recently just decided to retire and join Leif and Jocko uh, again for the second time in my life uh, with their leadership consulting company, Echelon Front. And tell me briefly about what you're doing today, translating all this experience in in uh, the armed forces into leadership development. What kind of work are you doing day yeah. in and day out? 
You bet. So the lessons we learned specifically in, in Ramadi in that combat deployment, which is a very challenging deployment, and the lessons I learned throughout my career, uh, they are directly applicable to the business world, to every aspect of life, personal life, private sector. Uh, leadership is leadership. Um, there is no difference. And a lot of times I think there's a presumed barrier or presumed a difference between how it works in the military and how it works elsewhere. And it's simply not the case. And one of the things we do is sort of break down that uh, perceived barrier, uh, draw that direct connection between the lessons that we learned uh, in Ramadi, the lessons we learned in combat and how they apply directly to business teams being successful. And the book, Extreme Ownership, that Leif and Jaka wrote, obviously is an incredible vehicle. It's an incredibly popular book for what I think is a very obvious reason is that the book just makes sense. It's a extremely well-written, very practical, but it's also shows how directly relatable those experiences are to every aspect of life. And that's resonating with people. And I, uh, I'm lucky enough now to get the opportunity to make an impact in the private sector using those same lessons mm-hmm. I learned in my career as a Marine. Well, certainly the book, as you said, it resonates. It resonated with me on, on a couple levels. You know, one, for my own leadership, and my, I actually bought copies and gave one to my entire leadership team because I thought a lot of the, the general leadership practices that are laid out in there are applicable. You know, and what you might think of as yeah. you know, unique to the military really resonate. And I know you'll, you'll get into those a bit in our call today. But the second thing that really struck me, and we talked about this earlier, is that, you know, having never served in the military, never really been inside the armed forces, I perhaps approached the book with some mistaken assumptions or, you know, around military leadership and really communication, which is my area of passion, being very command and control. I mean, even that phrase command and control comes from military jargon. And, you know, when I read this book and in our conversation, it's really clear that that's not the case, is it? That that it's uh, that real leaders, as you said, I think don't give orders. Yeah. The reason why that uh, and look, the idea of approaching that book with a little bit of skepticism or maybe just some misunderstanding is very common. Uh, that is something that I have uh, been aware of and, and, and had to, to consider throughout my life is what I described earlier, that sort of perceived barrier. Uh, and it is understandable. I mean, a lot of what we learn from the military, sometimes we see in movies, we certainly get from, uh, from the entertainment side or, or maybe just our perceptions. But the common denominator between people in the military and the people in the private sector uh, is that they are people. And they're human beings and they have the same uh, human behaviors, same human instincts, same approach to things. And and we have different uh, processes by which we train folks, but ultimately how you interact with the people around you, how do you develop teams and how you get those teams to be successful is about human nature. Uh, Leadership is a human nature endeavor. The ones in the military that understand that the most are the most successful. The ones with the best relationships are the most successful. And the ones that leverage their power from the chain of command, the one that leverage their power from the organizational chart or from what they consider to be their vehicle is that there might be a commander that might be in charge. Or those, those are the people that are the least successful. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there is a clear command structure in the military. We all understand that. But the reason we're successful isn't because of that command structure. That's simply a vehicle to allow us kind of hierarchical organization, but the, the real success comes from from just basic leadership mm-hmm. and building relationships with the people around you. So let's start with there with that point around what leadership is. I mean, how would you, it's clearly not from what you're saying, rank-based. So how in your career would you say that the most successful leaders in the military define themselves and what's the lesson there for civilians, if you will? I think the best thing you can do for yourself and for the people that you're responsible for, the people on your team, is train them, 
and prepare them to be successful in whatever it is that their objective, their missions are. And, and missions in the military change, but ultimately we all realize that we contribute to some larger enterprise. We are part of the unit, maybe part of a team, a squadron, a, a battalion, or what have you. And we break those, those smaller teams down in these sort of discrete organizations and they have a specific size, a specific shape, you know, maybe equipment and missions and things like that, but they all serve some, you know, larger mission, something we all really believe in in the military, obviously, and that's just being successful. Uh, you know, we, we talk about being successful in combat, but the organizations that are the best led are the people that recognize that training your folks to be successful in the endeavors that, that they're uh, responsible for is what leadership is all about. Mm -hmm. And the best thing you can do in the military is train your folks to be so good at what they do that they don't need you anymore. Right. Uh, and they can be successful without you. And when you train your team and you invest in your team, you build a good relationship with your team and your team functions well and they operate well and they build relationships with each other well and they work well together and they become successful. I'm more confident they get better. They take on bigger tasks. And you know that momentum actually has the ability to permeate throughout the entire military. And they have a path forward, a path to be successful and people are invested in it. And that's all anybody really wants. They mm -hmm. want to be able to, to lead. They want to be able to make decisions and implement that serve a higher purpose, make an impact and be successful. And that's a recipe uh, for lifelong success. Well, uh, you know, something I want to hone in on that you raised uh, there is this importance of leaders being able to unify people around a mission and connect them to what, what, you're, what they're achieving. Talk to me about, I know you were an instructor at Top Gun and as someone who's watched yeah. the movie a lot, obviously that got, got me really excited. But when people arrived at Top Gun as as pilots, you know, I, you know, just envisioning it, I'd imagine you have some of the most successful Type A driven professionals. What kind of leadership in terms of communicating mission to them? How did you go about it there to make sure that they got the most out of their time at Top Gun? Yeah. So the thing that that strings everybody at Top Gun together, what is the baseline or sort of the fundamental foundation for why people are there, is so they can be teachers. Look, everybody wants to go to Top Gun to be successful. Everybody wants to be the best pilot they can be. And there's a ton of competition because, like you said, uh, they're type A, they're aggressive, they are, uh, you know, there's some ego there. I, I certainly suffer from that. But there's there's an intense personal drive. That, that, and I would never argue that that's not the case. And I think those are all very positive things. But the reason you go to Top Gun and the reason why people want to do well at Top Gun and, and really why we're teaching them is so they can go back to their units and they can instruct the pilots and their squadrons to be successful in combat. It's really not that complex. The better a teacher you are, the more credible you are, the more capable of a teacher you are, the, the better you can get the people around you to improve the fastest, the more likely you're gonna be successful when it matters most. You know, and, and we've been at war in, a country, in our country for, for a very long time now, and we've been reliant on generation after generation of pilots learning to teach brand new folks in their units to be successful in really demanding environments. So what everybody understands when they go to Top Gun as a student, the real responsibility that's being put on them isn't just to perform well in the class, isn't just to be the best pilot they can be. It's for them to be in a position where they can teach everything they learn to an entire another generation of pilots coming in behind them. You know, every couple of years you get this new wave of pilots coming through Top Gun uh, as instructors, and that is the same everywhere else. You get these, you know, year after year, you get new pilots come in and old pilots leave, and you've got to train them. And Top Gun is about being a teacher. Uh, and when you sort of recognize that the real impact isn't just about your individual performance, it's not just about how good you are, it's about how well you can teach from yours and from others' mistakes. 
the better and the more effective mm. you are. So the most I mean, effective pilots out there aren't necessarily the ones that are best controlling of the airplane. It's the ones that are the best teachers. That's remarkable because I, you know I never I would have thought it's about individual performance, but really you challenge them to become teachers of themselves. Did anyone come in? Was that a surprise when people would arrive at Top Gun? Were they surprised that that was the mission, the vision, rather than individual success? No, I think people understand, certainly inside uh, the organization, let's be clear, when you get to a fighter squadron, you know, in in naval aviation, whether it's a Navy or Marine F-18 squadron, just about everybody wants to go to Top Gun. It's Mm. highly competitive and people do want to go. It, It sort of represents the apex of not just the best training, but uh, to be associated with sort of the most elite organization in fighter aviation for the Navy and the Marine Corps. And with those type A personalities, those aggressive personalities, people want to be a part of that. Right. But, you know, you don't show up to a fighter squadron knowing what you're doing. You very quickly, you check in, uh, you're part of a unit, and you immediately start a, a training continuum. And at the beginning, everything is a learning process and, and qualification after qualification and, and time after time you grow and develop and you become an instructor yourself. What guys are trying to figure out or what folks are trying to figure out as fast as they can is how well, uh, how quickly they be- can become a good teacher. Uh, and that's really what Top Gun is about. There is a, a tremendous individual performance component to that. You need to do well. You need to have a good command of the aircraft. You have to understand the mission systems. You have to understand the tactics. You have to understand all the elements going into being individually successful. But the ones that don't recognize that the whole point of them being there is so they can continue to train the people after them, those are the ones that struggle. It's pretty obvious to see folks that are in it for themselves. It doesn't happen very often, but it does. Those are typically the ones with the biggest ego. Those are typically the ones that are most concerned about their performance as it compared to their peers, as opposed to recognizing what their errors were and helping their peers. Uh, and every now and then you get uh, you get a pilot who either needs to sort of recalibrate or or sometimes if their ego is too big, they got to go home. Hmm. Uh, and I don't think anybody is too surprised getting a Top Gun that it's a matter of blending that individual performance, but really promoting that idea that you're there to teach, you're there to lead, uh, you're there to make sure your squadron is successful. You don't want to be the best fighter pilot in a squadron that isn't very good. You don't want to be the nice. best pilot in a squadron that doesn't do well in combat. Um, you want to be the best pilot in a squadron that does extremely well in the most challenging environments. And that requires leadership. It requires leadership just like it does in every other organization in the world. And I imagine that from what you're describing, there are a lot of situations, whether it's at Top Gun or the pilots who go back to their squadrons, where there's people who are providing leadership to those who may be at a peer level in rank or even a a more senior level. Is is that accurate? Absolutely. It's 100% accurate what we call leading up the chain of command. You know, sometimes mm-hmm. you have to lead up. So people are teaching to make each other better. And it sounds like across the lines of, uh, of authorities, you have people of the same rank or influencing upward. And obviously there are implications for those in business and government who want to influence upward as well. So talk a bit more about how you do that effectively and how you create a culture where that kind of leadership is expected. What you're describing is something that really applies everywhere. I mean, it applies in the military for sure. You know, there are a lot of folks that sort of rely on that rank and or lean heavily on that rank. You know, it's no different than the private sector, but everybody knows what your rank is in the military. I mean, you literally hmm. wear it on your on your shirt. Uh, everybody knows who's in charge. Everybody knows that hierarchy, that organizational chart is explicit. So there's never any confusion about who is in charge or who is the senior person there or who outranks who. 
you know, the best organizations. Uh, and we do this really well in aviation. We kind of have a saying, we say there's no rank in the cockpit. So if I were to go out and fly with you and the two F-18s were flying in and you were technically senior to me, maybe you were a colonel and I was a captain or something like that. But if I was designated the lead, you know, we both can subordinate ourselves and, and, and not worry about the rank and just go out there to learn. And there's plenty of humility across the board for people to recognize. Maybe in this case, I'm more experienced than you. I'm an instructor in this capacity and you're happy to learn. So, so more often than not, it's not really an issue. You, you know, senior leaders in the military don't, you know, they don't just rely on the chain of command and they don't say, well, I'm senior, so I'm in charge. They understand in those training and learning environments. But there are times, you know, where as a junior person in, in, in a squadron, in a unit and, and in the private sector as well, you want to influence positively uh, your leadership. And, you know, the best way to do that, and it should stand a reason, the best way to do that is have a really good relationship with your leadership. So when you come up with an idea or a suggestion or an offer to to implement uh, a new plan or or that you want to what we call lead up the chain, you've worked on relationships with those people for, for a long time. So you have credibility. You're a well-respected individual and a contributor. And when you have something to offer, they're going to listen to you. You know, and the ideal way to do that is to leverage the relationship you've built. And, you know, the, the inverse is true as a leader. If your subordinates, people that are junior to you in the organization will try to have good ideas or have demonstrated a capacity to lead, you should let them. And I think where the challenge comes from is more obvious when when people can't do that, when ego gets in the way, when you don't want to let someone junior to you be in charge or let someone junior to you have a better idea or, or implement a plan that that's better than your own. Uh, and while it'd be you know great for us to say what we need to do is check our egos, we understand that. As a junior person, sometimes that doesn't happen. Sometimes you have to come up with a better way or, or a unique way uh, to lead up the chain. And, you know, it's fairly simple. There's two ways to do it. You can either do the direct approach. We call that the frontal assault. It doesn't work <laughs> usually very well because if your boss is the type of person that naturally doesn't want to listen to you because he's got a big, big ego, he's probably not going to listen to you come at him directly uh, with the frontal assault and say, hey, my idea is better than yours. You should do what I say. So what you need to do is recognize what it is the boss wants to accomplish work on what we call the indirect approach and coming up with ways where you can implement what he wants, ask him for help on on some ideas, uh, make some suggestions, say, hey, sir, you know, hey, boss, or whatever the scenario is, I, I really want to be successful here. The thing I care about the most is us accomplishing the mission or achieving your objectives. I had a few ideas. Do these make sense? Is this what you'd like to see me do? If they're good ideas, I'll implement them. If you've got better ideas because of your experience, tell me what those, what those things are. And then if you can manage to forge past that barrier where he wants to be clear that he's in charge, let him be in charge. He wants to take credit for it, give him credit. All you really should care about as a leader is being successful. And if at the end it requires you to, to check your ego and, and recognize that the boss has a particular way of doing business and you've got to massage that and make that uh, mm -hmm. effective using the indirect route, then just do it. And then at the end, you're successful. Then we find in every organization is over time, the people that are making the biggest impact, sooner or later, everybody discovers that. Whether you have a great boss or a terrible boss or everything in between, when you're the one figuring out a way to build relationships, break down barriers, be successful, just a matter of time before people recognize you're the reason things are getting done. It's your leadership, which is allowing people to be successful around you. And if you just sort of stick to doing that and, and keep your ego in check and not worry about, you know, the big uh, uh, confrontations with your leadership, uh, you just stick to implementing good plans and, and building good relationships, you're going to be successful. Yeah, it is remarkable just listening to you how, you know, how similar the prescriptions are for great success and leadership from within the military and, and without, you know, when you look at the idea of that first point around leaders, unify people around the mission. And then, you know, second, that leaders are able to 
really reach people and influence them, not with, as you said, the full frontal approach, but through whatever method's going to result in, in people coming together for the success of the operation. And I know we've been talking mostly about Top Gun, where it's more of a training environment. I know it's an intense one, but I want to switch gears a bit because I know you took quite an interesting career switch after yeah. Top Gun. When you went off to combat, did any, any new lessons emerge in how leaders can communicate in this way that really creates a unified approach and success? So talk a bit about your transition and then some of the early lessons that, that drove home for you when you were over there. Well, yeah, it was a big transition for me. I left Top Gun and the very next thing I did was become a foreign air controller. And I found myself in just a, a relatively short period of time uh, in Ramadi working with the SEALs from, from Draco's task unit. And obviously the environment for me was very different. And, and really what it served to do is reinforce what we've already been talking about and the lessons that I have learned and relearned throughout my career is that leadership is leadership is leadership. It is environment, it is industry, it is scenario agnostic things that make you successful at a place like Top Gun, the things that make you successful in combat in Ramadi, the things that make you successful in the private sector, the thing that makes you a good dad, a good husband, those are all the same things. And so what the original struggle for me was is that what I didn't have initially was sort of that natural credibility. Look, when I was a Top Gun instructor, the community that I worked with knew who I was. I was well-known in the F-18 community in the Navy and the Marine Corps. I was a senior instructor at Top Gun, a training officer there, and everybody knew who I was. And I didn't have to prove or really convince anybody that I was working with that you maybe came through as a student or other junior pilots on the staff uh, that I knew what I was doing. You know, for the most part, Top Gun instructors have good reputations. We've established those reputations. So from a credibility standpoint, it, that wasn't a barrier for me. Uh, and what I really needed to do is just prove that I was a really good teacher and, and I was uh, someone that people wanted to spend time with and could build a relationship with and, and we could work well together. And that's, you know, that's the thing you really mm -hmm. need to focus on. When I got to be a Ford Air Controller, I suddenly had 13 Marines, all of them junior to me, uh, some with varying levels of experience, some with no experience at all. But all of a sudden I was on the ground living in, in a different environment, doing things that I had never done before and sort of the natural credibility that came along with being a uh, a pilot uh, wasn't there. So the first thing I had to do is prove that I was going to be reliable as a leader in difficult situations. And, you know, that comes, I think, those natural leadership skills of, of being able to lead in difficult environments. I, I was familiar with that. So the stress and the environments are a little bit different, but I have grown accustomed to being in difficult situations. And it doesn't matter if it's a difficult or stressful situation in the air, on the ground, anywhere else. You got to maintain your composure. You got to understand what you're trying to do. You got to get your people around you to maintain their composure. And you got to forge through whatever those challenges are. So that I kind of understood. But what I realized is that I was never going to get to the point that I was any better or, or even as good as a lot of the guys that I was working with, because what they'd been doing, they'd been doing for years. I was going to be there for, for less than a year. And so I wasn't going to build this scenario where I was going to prove that I was better than them. And what I was going to prove is that I was a reliable, capable leader that understand the mission. I was going to create good plans and implement good leadership to keep my Marines safe and successful. And anything that I needed help on with, you know, equipment or systems or, or things that they are more familiar with, I was happy to say, hey, look, you're better at the radios than I am. You understand this equipment more than me. Hey, you're in charge of the radios. I'm going to learn from you. You're going to teach me. You're going to train me. And I'm going to put you in a position that you are responsible for these things. I'll obviously be responsible for any of the consequences. I'm not going to let him get in trouble for something that goes wrong that I'm really responsible for. 
But ultimately, when my Marines realized that I was going to leverage their expertise, the reason that they were there, I was going to let them lead in, in the areas that they were comfortable leading in areas where they knew more than I did. But we started to get along better and built better relationships. We trusted each other more. But every person that's ever hired in any company is there for a reason. You hire those people for either some quality or some potential or some capability. They want to utilize that. You know, when you bring people into work for you, you brought them in for a reason. Whatever that reason is, is what they, they want to show that off. They want to implement that. They want to demonstrate to you that the reason you hired them, they're good at that thing. And the best thing you can do is give them ownership and give them responsibility as early as possible and tell them, hey, I may be the boss. We all know who's in charge of this team or this group, but you've got a huge advantage of me on this. And I'd be crazy not to take advantage of that. So in this area here, I'm going to give you the ball. You're going to run it and I'm going to follow you. Yeah. So from a communication standpoint, I think as your point around, this is a, a great example of, you know, anyone moving into a new role, anyone moving into a new company or taking over a new team, it sounds like what, what you did was you, you did take ownership of the, the team, but you also really looked to identify each person's, you know, skills, uh, area of expertise, and you, you sought to empower them through your, your communication. Is that, does that capture it? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's exactly right. Look, any leader that has to tell the people working for him, do it because I'm in charge. Uh, you've lost all your credibility as a leader. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows I've been promoted. Everybody knows who's in charge of the team. The best thing you can do is say, Hey, look, I'm responsible for everything that happens on this team. Every outcome is my responsibility. And my only commitment is for all of us to be successful. Because if we're successful, the team is successful, the organization is successful, the entire company is successful, everybody benefits. And so when you create a little bit of investment of people recognizing that all you want is for them to be successful and the team to win, you can immediately rally around the, the same objective. And you take it away from, I'm going to get recognized as the best team leader. I'm going to get an award for having the best team. I just want the team to be successful. I don't care about credit. I don't care about recognition. And then you remind those people and, and you remind them not just of the things that they're really good at, but you remind them, remind them that just because you got promoted yesterday overnight somehow, you know, your capacity or, or unique abilities isn't any different than it was yesterday. If someone has more expertise than you or more capability than you or more understanding than you in a subject, I'm going to go to those people and say, hey, you're an expert here. I need to learn from you. Uh, I'm going to need your help with this. I'm going to need you to lead in your areas. And people feel like their contributions are to the team, for the team to be successful. And it's not about the team leader. It's just about the team being successful. And the best leaders recognize that the only outcome is being successful. Nothing else matters in terms of your own individual success. And when you start leveraging your individual success or your individual position, you actually lose credibility, become less effective as a leader. And anybody's ever worked for someone that says, do it because I'm in charge, knows right away you think less of that person. That right. person has less credibility and they're more likely going to be less successful. So let, so let me ask you then, Dave, because this I agree with you, it makes total sense. And this is really from the book, this concept of extreme ownership. But why why doesn't it happen all the time? What are the pitfalls you know, that you saw in your career you know, because obviously the fact that you you teach this because there's a need, there's a need to embrace this mindset, to have this kind of humility that allows you to empower well, others. The, so why doesn't yeah, that happen consistently? Obvious, yeah, the two most obvious reasons is is actually it's really easy to find blame elsewhere. It, hmm. it takes almost no effort, you know, depending on whether you're the private sector or the military, whatever what is. It's so easy to say, well, we didn't get the funding or we don't have the right budget or we don't have the right equipment or I don't have enough people. Finding blame externally takes basically no effort. Right. So we're asking, why is it? Why does it happen all the time? It's because it's easy. It's super right. easy to find blame elsewhere. And 
look, when you grow up in any organization and you see your leadership doing that, you start to emulate that. So if you are brand new in an organization and you see your boss finding reasons why you weren't successful external to himself, guess what you're going to do? You're more than likely going to do the exact same thing. You know, people are going to follow our leadership style. And if our leadership is to blame the economy or, or blame the marketplace or blame the competition or blame your personnel that aren't good enough or, or blame any other reason other than yourself, you will create another generation of people to do the exact same thing. You're never excited for anybody else to give you an excuse for anything that goes wrong. You want solutions. You want people to take responsibility. But suddenly when, the, when that's on our shoulders – to go to our leadership and tell them why our project wasn't successful or why, why we're behind schedule or why we're not getting it done that we need to get done. The other part of that is that you don't just take ownership of that. You actually own what the solution is going to be. So you can't just say, hey, boss, this is my fault. And boss says, I know it's your fault. He's going to say, what is it that we're going to do to solve this problem? And you know, to be honest with you, in the real world, if you actually take ownership of everything, the worst case scenario is that you're going to get fired because you're going to own the consequences. So mm-hmm. if you're going to walk up to your leadership and say, this is my fault, and what happened is so catastrophic that you need to get fired, you need to be prepared for that outcome. And that can be a big challenge. The irony is, is that the best hedge, the best way to prevent you getting fired for making a big mistake is to take full responsibility for this mistake, come up with an implement, implementation plan to correct the mistake, capture all the lessons you learned from that mistake and all the things you're going to do different going forward to prevent that mistake from happening again. And then being successful is actually the best way to prevent it from happening. But when we say like, oh man, if I get, if I end up, end up taking responsibility for this, I could lose my job or I could lose this promotion or, or people get, they get nervous, they hide, they get skinny, they kind of lean uh, away from the problem. And the irony is, is that the best way to make sure that you actually don't end up leaving is taking full responsibility for every aspect, every problem, every solution, every implementation of being successful. If I'm a boss and I have one of my subordinates come up and say, it's not my fault, it's Ken's fault or Joe's fault or Sandy's fault, it's gonna bother me. And if I have the same employee walk up and say, boss, this is my fault. This is what I did wrong. This is what I learned. This is what I'm gonna do differently this time. This is when I'm gonna get this done. This is how I'm gonna get this done. And this is when I'm gonna solve the problem moving forward. And this is how I'm gonna teach everybody else around me not to make that mistake. There's almost no situation that I wouldn't say, okay, let's go do that. So there are barriers Mm -hmm. to doing it, but if you take a step back and sort of think objectively as the best way to handle a problem, it's really not that complicated. And I love the way you describe, you know, that if you don't have that mindset to protect yourself, well, it actually becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. It does. Yeah, it absolutely mm-hmm. does. That's the irony in it is that you're, you're trying to avoid taking responsibility. That's the best way for somebody to blame you for right. what's going on is, right. is you point the finger elsewhere. So, Dave, let's sum up here. You know, in, in listening to you, it's really driven home to me that the principles, as you said, of leadership in the armed forces are identical and completely applicable to leadership in the corporate world and in government. And in particular, what, what I'm focused on is, is the mindset and how you communicate as a leader. So what would be, if you had to summarize the three most important pieces of advice that you would give to people who say, how do I communicate as a leader? What would they be? Well, look, what you said is correct. And that is an important thing for people to recognize is that it's not similar. It's not, it's identical. The qualities that make people good leaders, they're the same everywhere, they apply everywhere, and they work all the time. There is never a place where it's not good to have good relationships, where it's not good to operate as teams. It's not good to have plans where people can implement those plans. It's not good for you to take responsibility for the outcome. That is universal. 
And I think the the glaring piece um, that is probably the strong number one on that list when you're talking about the three qualities that really make the biggest difference for people to be successful in any industry, military or otherwise, the first one is humility. The idea of being uh, humble or having a, a high level of humility really affects everything else that you do. Because when you lack that, you cannot learn, you can't get better, and you can't listen to other people. And so that is mm-hmm. something that people have to work on throughout their lives. I continue to have to work on that. I have my entire mm-hmm. career. I promise you, ego is a big problem in the world of fighter aviation. You know, fighter mm-hmm. pilots have egos. I, I understand it. I, I have suffered from that throughout my career. And it's the biggest barrier to being successful. And all I have to do right now is think of someone that you know with a big ego to recognize how much of a barrier having a big ego is to being successful. Because nobody likes working for people with big right. egos. And that's the same so, in the boardroom. <laughs> It's, it's, it's the same everywhere, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's no different anywhere. And the irony is that you know people with big egos are people that have been successful. They're people that have done well. They're people that kind of think highly of themselves, mostly because their life experience and their success has demonstrated to them, hey, you're pretty good. You keep getting better and you keep outperforming your peers and your ego starts to grow. And for the most part, those are people that want to do well. They want to continue mm-hmm. to grow and develop and advance. The biggest barrier to growing, developing and advancing is your ego. So the ones that suffer from the biggest ego because of how good they think they are are the ones most likely to fail at some point. Hmm. So humility affects every single aspect of our lives because it's Mm -hmm. humility that allows us to get some really good ideas from subordinates that are several ranks below us in the chain of command, whereas a different leader with a bigger ego might not be interested in what a brand new employee had to say or, or someone else had an idea that could help them do better. It's that humility that allows us to not just assess ourselves, which is critical, but be willing to listen to other people around us. The other piece that is critical, your ability to communicate effectively. Mm-hmm. Something that we see in, in the private sector, and I saw it in the military too, is that people like to develop and deliver really complicated plans because they feel really smart. Uh, they like to be able to come up with a plan that's so complex that only a few people can understand it. It's great too if there's a yeah. 50 slide PowerPoint deck to go with it. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. And, and boy, <laughs> in the military, we, we can do PowerPoint uh, you know, better than anybody for sure. Right. Here's the thing. And here's what leaders should think about. I already talked about the idea of of being humble. That is by far the most important aspect. The most brilliant people in the world, the smartest people in the world, the best leaders in the world are ones that develop, implement, and teach and deliver plans that are so simple, every single person on your team can understand it. The people, the, the absolute lowest levels. So we have these questions all the time. People ask us, you know, my team doesn't follow what I'm asking them to do. The guys at the, at the front line, the point of friction can't execute. They can't do their job. They're not doing well. They're not performing the way I expect. It's usually pretty simple why. They don't know why or what they're doing. And that is a function of leadership. It's a function of your inability as a leader to deliver a plan. Look, it is a complicated world. I understand that. But if your plans are complex that people don't understand them, they can't execute. It's not that complicated. If your people don't know what to do, they won't do what they're supposed to do. They'll stop. They'll make things up. They'll ignore the problem. They'll call you. And if you can reverse the idea about what a brilliant leader is, a brilliant leader is so good at doing what he does that he delivers a plan that every single person understands. That is the sign of brilliant leadership, that everybody walks away knowing exactly what they're supposed to be doing. And then the last aspect I would, I would incorporate if your idea as a leader, your goal as a leader should make everybody on your team as good or better than you. 
if you are the indispensable leader that without you, the wheels fall off the wagon, if you can't show up for work for a day without things you know going sideways, if you have to do it because it won't get done correctly without you, you're doing something wrong. Your job should have people on your team that are as good as you are, that everybody can do the job without you, that if you disappeared off the face of the earth tomorrow, it wouldn't hurt the team. And you know what we do with people that are so good at leading that they don't need to go do their job anymore because the people around them will step up and make it happen? We don't fire those people. We promote those people. We give them more responsibility uh, and bigger tasks, bigger projects, and usually more money. Hmm. So the best leaders are the ones that build leaders around them at every level and that make their team so good that they can be successful without them. So uh, those are the three that certainly come into mind. I say that the things that I I Mm -hmm. always try to do myself, things I continue to work on now, and those are the three qualities I think as any leader in any industry should consider to be the long-term recipe for success. Be humble, communicate effectively, and create leaders around you. I I love it. I love the simplicity of it. Dave, this has been incredibly valuable, certainly on a personal level, as someone who grew up watching Top Gun, a real... A real uh, privilege to to talk with you, but also the, just to learn about how in these extreme high performance parts of the U.S. Armed Forces that leadership is not only alive and well, but you're on the cutting edge of what leadership thinking is. And, you know, it stands the test of, uh, of very difficult circumstances. So really appreciate you coming on and sharing these experiences and insights with me. For anyone who's enjoyed this conversation, I've read it. I highly recommend you pick up Jocko Willink and Leif Babin's book, Extreme Ownership. I know you can listen to Jocko and Dave on Jocko's podcast. Tell listeners also if they want to get in touch, they want to bring you in to work with their companies, how they get in touch and what do you go in and do to help businesses perform? I would certainly a love to get in touch with anybody listening. If, if this sparks your interest, you want to communicate more or, or just get a better sense of what Echelon Front does, it's very easy. Go to echelonfront.com. If you want to talk to me directly, email me at dave at echelonfront.com. And podcasts are great because we talk about our, our approach to leadership, you know, the, is we work with companies, all sizes, all shapes, all industries that are interested in getting better and being successful. And we introduce the concepts, we assess how uh, and where they need to, to implement those concepts in their organization. And we create programs where we align with what their industry values are, what their company values are, what their vision and their their objectives are. And we implement these, again, very simple concepts that are easy to say, very hard to do. Uh, and we help them create a better understanding of that. The responsibility for everything falls on your shoulders. And when you take that responsibility, the only outcome is that you are more successful and that you end up winning. Well, clearly you made a great transition to, uh, to this new life. And so uh, yeah. Congratulations and really appreciate you taking this time to, to share some insights with us, Dave. Thanks for having me. It's a yeah. lot of fun. Thanks a lot. That was a really neat conversation with Dave Burke. As someone who has a history degree and has studied the military, I felt really privileged to be able to ask Dave about what leadership and leadership communication is really like in some of the most elite units in the world. And what was striking to me was how similar it is to leadership in the world, the business world, in the world of government, because as Dave says, people are people. And the fundamentals of influencing and inspiring them are the same no matter where you are. If you enjoyed my conversation today with Dave, Well, please do subscribe to the Inspire podcast so you never miss another episode. And please do rate and review it. That helps others to find us. 
And you can follow me on Twitter at THG underscore Bart. I welcome your questions on leadership communication. And if I get enough questions, I might even do an entire episode uh, responding to Q&A. Finally, if you'd like to know more about what we do in the leadership communication field at The Humphrey Group, go to www.thehumphreygroup.com. You'll also find a link to my book, Leading Through Language. Thanks for listening.